my story gets more interesting from failing to be a footballer, I think. And I decided to give up football when I was 21. You, you can remember, obviously, the disappointment. I remember crying. Like, I remember thinking that my world had, had come to an end. And that's when I went into, into coaching. After I've gone on to get the UEFA Pro Licence, which is the highest coaching qualification in the world. I've lived in four different countries. I've worked at every level of football, from academy football, under nines, through to under 16s, under 19s, under 21s, to first team level in Sweden, coaching the Champions League, Europa League. You know, and I've worked with some great players at the clubs that I've been at, and I've also worked individually as a coach for some of the best players in football. So I've got a really good experience in the game, and I'm really thankful for it, you know, but it's uh, also down to, to hard work. So obviously, I really appreciate what I've got, but of course, I have to recognise that I've worked hard to, to get where I am. It's not just about the talent, it's about the mindset and the mental strength that you need to be able to thrive in a, in a very, very cutthroat and tough environment that not a lot of people get to be part of. I wouldn't say I'm fortunate to be mentally strong. I, I know that I am mentally tough because I've dealt with setback very well and, and learned how to deal with it. And of course, there is a period where you do feel quite low, you feel quite lonely, but you have to tell yourself that you've got to get up and you've got to get going and you've got to move on to the next or try and find the next opportunity and kind of use it as a positive if you can to, to be tough and think, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going, to, I'm going to find the next one and I'm going to succeed and I'm going to prove whoever it might be or whoever it, you know whatever establishment it was wrong that it was the wrong decision to let me go Hi and welcome to Let's Listen with Kieran McBreen. My name's Andrew and I'm here with Kieran and we're back for season 4. Hi Kieran, how are you today? I'm great Andrew, thanks so much. And we must start with Eid Mubarak. We're over here in Dubai and it is the Eid celebrations this weekend. Eid Mubarak to everyone out there. Now, on today's show, we've got Sean O'Shea. Um, Sean is an international football manager. He has managed across all the levels, right up to the Champions League, culminating in his position as manager of AIK Sweden. He's now here in Dubai uh, at the director of football for Cognita. But he really opens up about the, the pressures which you don't always understand about, about football management. He sure does, Andrew. Sean's story is phenomenal and a story that many young men out there and women in today's society can resonate with. You know, failure, determination, commitment, being available for so many people, being accountable for so many people. Can you imagine how many people are involved in running a football club? And for him to be at the forefront of that, there's clearly a massive element of pressure. And this is where wellness and well-being and, and looking after yourself comes in. And, and Sean made some great points about the challenges associated with this and, and the challenges associated with young people coming coming into football clubs and the expectations placed upon them. As we hear from uh, Sean's story, it certainly is not a straightforward one and it's certainly not an easy one. It really is a fantastic listen. Now, before we get straight into that, let's get through the plugs. We still, Kieran, have the book, don't we? Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, the book has been out for nearly a year now. We released it, actually, can you believe it, Andrew, last May? Yes, um, it's, time has flown by, doesn't it? Absolutely flown by, but the most important thing is is that it's, 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 it's in Australia, it's in India, it's in Canada, it's in America, it's in Ireland, England, of course, and the sales here in Dubai have been phenomenal as well. The greatest pleasure from the book is that people contact me telling me that they can see themselves in, in each story, they can relate to that character, 
and that's 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 what's important about it that we're making people feel that they're not alone and that these problems that they're facing you know it's universal and it's common very tellingly andrew it's not just teenagers that are finding the book beneficial of course it's their parents as well because part of the objective of the book was to bridge the gap between parents and, and children teenagers to be specific but I've had people contact me, Andrew, who aren't parents and who are adults. But the reality is they were teenagers one time ago. It's bringing up past experiences and it's getting them to talk about stuff that maybe maybe they brushed under the carpet. And, and when we talk about things, as you, as you well know, then we can start fixing things. And that's the whole idea of the book, is to unearth these challenging stories and to start working on them. And if people do want to talk about things they they can come to you you have your online program that you, they can come and talk to you about yes andrew i'm very proud of the student Wellbeing warrior program it's making a big difference it really really is it's extremely simple and for, and for students who complete this program the response from the parents has been wonderful they're generally better people the behavior is better they're learning better they're more engaged in school they're more grateful for everything around them and as you know now we've created an online version to make it more accessible to more people So we'll link to all of these in the show notes. So there's the book, there's the one-to-one sessions with Kieran, or there's the online course that you can download. We also need to say a big thank you to our sponsors for season four, which is ISD Sports Science here in Sports City in Dubai. So a big thank you to them. And so after all of that, let's get straight back into the show. This is Sean O'Shea. Sean, thank you so much for coming on to the Let's Listen podcast. How are you tonight? Very good, Kieran. Yeah, thank you. Really delighted to be on. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Sean, what's your topic? Yeah, I wanted to talk about, about mindset and, and mental strength and, and kind of what's needed in, in football to, to reach to the, the very top. You know, I've I played football as a youngster. Uh, I've coached the, the highest level of football. I've dealt with very, very successful professional footballers. I've dealt with good footballers who couldn't keep themselves in the game because of mindset. And also I've worked with a lot of young players trying to make it as a professional footballer and, and trying to kind of teach them from my experiences that it's not just about the talent, it's about the mindset and the mental strength that you need to be able to thrive in a, in a very, very cutthroat and tough environment that not a lot of people get to be part of. Fantastic topic, Sean. So I'm going to start with you. Sean, for our audience out there, what is your story? So my story is, I think, starts off very similar to a lot of people who, who loved playing football as a youngster and dreamt of being a professional footballer. My story gets more interesting from failing to be a footballer, I think, <laughs> in a strange way. I started playing football when I was seven years old in Huddersfield, where I grew up. I remember the first training session like it was yesterday. I remember what I was wearing, who the coach was, and, and kind of what we did in that session. And I fell in love with the game, and I was fortunate enough to be, I suppose, very good at football. I don't know if that was natural or just because I worked hard and took a football everywhere I went with me. I progressed really well and, and quite easily as a youngster, I was a young footballer, so I, I played for Huddersfield schools from under-10s. That was before academy football existed in England. Then I went into academy football for my hometown, Huddersfield, and school football and club football was always something that I excelled at and thrived at and, and was very, very good at. And I suppose when I got to 16, and, and that's where you become, a, you know, as it was a YTS, now it's a, a scholar for three years before you become a pro, I signed for, for Huddersfield and um, that's where it all kind of fell apart. I, I was playing against the best players in the country then and I also got quite a serious injury to my shoulder. So that kind of hampered my, my career and I found myself out of football and in rehab for, for quite a bit of time. And that led to me being released from Huddersfield permanently. And then I was kind of on the scrap heap, if you like, from, from my hometown club. 
and I had to try and find a way into football. So I played semi-professional for a couple of years, but that didn't kind of get me to where I, I wanted to be or where I aspired to be. And I decided to give up football when I was 21. And that's when I went into into coaching. And that's largely, uh, thankfully, down to my parents because as a youngster, when you wanted to be a, a professional footballer and that doesn't happen, you're not really thinking about what do you do next or what other avenues could you could you go down to stay in professional football. And that's they pushed me to do my first coaching course. And from then on, from a 21-year-old starting on that coaching ladder, I've gone on to get the UEFA Pro Licence, which is the highest coaching qualification in the world. I've lived in four different countries. I've worked at every level of football, from academy football, under nines, through to under 16s, under 19s, under 21s, to first team level in Sweden, coaching the Champions League, Europa League. You know, and I've worked with some great players at the clubs that I've been at, and I've also worked individually as a coach for some of the best players in football. So I've got a really good experience in the game and really thankful for it, you know, but it's uh, also down to, to hard work. So obviously I really appreciate what I've got, but of course I have to recognise that I've worked hard to, to get where I am. Amazing stuff, Sean. And um, I mean, it's an absolute credit to you and your family for everything you've achieved in the, in the coaching industry but i'm going to just take you back sean to the time you got released tell tell us the exact feelings that you were going through and, and how you felt afterwards strange because it was so long ago you, you can remember obviously the disappointment i remember crying like i remember thinking that my world had, had, had come to an end and um it was a really difficult period and i think as a youngster when you're you know when you're 18 19 you don't really reflect a lot you're not fully mature like you think you are of course but you're not fully mature the rejection is really really hard to take because I only ever thought from from being a young child that I was going to be a professional footballer so for, to find out or to realize this isn't going to happen it's devastating and to be really honest with you I'd kind of forgotten or maybe pushed it to the back of my mind of what it actually felt like at the time but when I left AIK in Sweden just over a year ago I had that same feeling again. Now, I didn't fail in Sweden. I didn't fail being a coach in Sweden. It might have been a perceived failure because I didn't get my contract renewed, but it was just circumstantial. But it still brought back those feelings of, you know, rejection and failure and that fear of like, what what do I do next? And to be honest, it was the fact that I had a good family, a good stable family around me to kind of guide me through that that period. The first time as a, as a young player, the second time leaving Sweden was because I had my wife and, and also my family around me as well. But I think, I wouldn't say I'm fortunate to be mentally strong. I, I know that I am mentally tough because I've dealt with setback very well and, and learned how to deal with it. And of course, there is a period where you do feel quite low, you feel quite lonely, but you have to tell yourself that you've got to get up and you've got to get going and you've got to move on to the next or try and find the next opportunity and kind of use it as a positive if you can to to be tough and think, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to I'm going to find the next one and I'm going to succeed and I'm going to prove whoever it might be or whoever, you know, whatever establishment it was wrong that it was the wrong decision to let me go. Thank you, Sean. In today's current um, football industry or football factory, I would say, I'm guessing your experience of being released was in the 90s. But now, you know, with so many academies and so many dreams and the flashy lifestyle of being a professional footballer, I can imagine that the phrase I've been released is happening all too often. What do you feel about the current the current system and, and how much care is available for these uh, young people who are being released, boys and girls? 
for me, it differs country to country. Like I've, like I said, I've lived in four different countries, so I've experienced different cultures and, and different ways of dealing with this. Now, you're right, when, when I got released, it was as simple as that. You're gone, and there's no there's no support structure. There's no no like, but we've offered we can offer you this, or we can help you with that. It's over. You're finished, and they just concentrate on the players that stayed. But now it's very different. You know, there's been some tragic stories of of, of young boys, certainly in recent years, who didn't make the cut and get that professional contract that have gone on to commit suicide because they couldn't recover from, you know, the disappointment or the tragedy of of not making it. And and that's that's really really heartbreaking. And it happens it happens all over the world. What I do notice the difference of say between England and Sweden. Like England has the Premier League, and like you say, it's the glitz and the glam and the money. And you've got young children or young boys and girls who could be millionaires before they're even eighteen or nineteen. You know, and, and everything that comes with that, the pressure, the environment that they're in with the media and with social media. And if you're not trained how to deal with that, especially when you're young and you're not fully mature and you don't understand the world, it can be very, very daunting. And there is a lot of help now. A good friend of mine works at Premier League Football Club and they have a great system. Football is very data-driven now and they can identify players who are obviously excelling and doing really well, but they can also, through data and, and through watching them and scouting them, they can they can see that that player probably isn't going to play for the first team. So quite early they see that and then they put them on a programme of education. So they do coaching courses and you know maybe they want to, go and be a sport scientist, fitness coach, data analyst, or all the other avenues that you could go down that weren't really available to, to me when I was an 18-year-old boy. And also they try and find them a club at another level. So there is a system in place and a support structure that when the contract finishes, they're not just tossed out of the club that they are looked after. In Sweden, for example, uh, education is, is, is massively important. So education comes first, sport comes second. Um, there isn't as big a spotlight on Swedish football, although it's a very, very good league. It doesn't have that same pressure or spotlight on it as the, as the Premier League does in England. So kids are well-educated in Sweden. They know the game very well. They know the different aspects of the game, but they also have really good education. So if they get to a point at the under-19s where they don't get a professional contract, then there is more for them. They're more equipped to go out into the world and maybe play at a lower level part-time and then you know continue their education or go into a different industry where they might have a full-time, a full-time job. That's great to hear, Sean, and it's wonderful that in today's society that support is available. Now, I'm going to flip this for a second. So we spoke about being released. What about the players who actually make it? You know, I'd imagine that life from us, from the couch, look at, looking at the football on TV, you know, it looks as if this lifestyle is fantastic, but there must be challenges. You know, can you give us an insight into the life of a professional footballer and what support is available for, for young people who actually make it? Because there's finances, there's responsibility, there's all this kind of stuff. So, so what what goes on, Sean? If you look, if you love sport, whatever you might love, uh, I think when you're from the outside looking in, you you think it was the, a dream job, and and it, and it is. There's no doubt about that. Like I, I love football, and I've worked with some top top players who who love the game. But eleven months of the year, you know, you train every day. What you eat is managed. How you sleep, where you sleep, when you have your day off, how much time you can spend with your family is limited. Invariably, if you play in Europe. You don't spend Christmas with your family. You don't spend New Year with your family. You know, you miss birthdays, you miss family weddings. It's really tough because it consumes your life. From my point of view, when I was in Sweden, we went into pre-season on the 5th of January and I wouldn't really be seen by anyone apart from at the football club until the middle of October when the season finished. So there are rewards that come with it if you reach the top, top level, of course. But there's huge pressure, huge scrutiny. Social media is is an awful place, you know, like for especially for a young player coming through. You have a bad game, you go onto Twitter 
and there's a few hundred people and a lot of comments of people hammering you and you know saying that you're not good enough and stuff and that's really really hard for certainly young players but even you know even established players like you, nobody likes to be criticized and very difficult even from people that you've never even heard of or people that exist on the on the other side of the phone for example it can be really damaging and that can drive players to alcoholism drug addiction gambling depression you know if i look at how we operated through covid for example players international players from outside sweden that that lived on their own that were young no families with them families couldn't come and visit they couldn't go and visit their family no girlfriends no kids you know it was really lonely they'd come to train in the morning train went home they sit at home watch netflix or play playstation but they're not interacting with anybody and that went on for quite a sustained period of time and the offset of that is of course like you say it's mental health problems now football clubs are really well equipped you know well-being is at the forefront of of a lot of industries now you know wellness and there are people at football clubs sports psychologists doctors etc who can can kind of help you and kind of guide you through but it's really really difficult and you have the players who don't make it and feel that rejection you have the players who do make it but can't sustain it because they can't handle the pressure drop out of the game and that's even more difficult in a way because if you get to 27 28 and then you drop out of the game for whatever reason it might be injury or other reasons well the younger kids who didn't make it have had eight years on you in terms of gaining experience and going out into the big wide world and, and looking after themselves we get asked a question when, when you do the, the coaching courses one of the sports psychologists asked the question like what's more important is it talent or is it mental strength and your first thought is well it's talent because you need the talent to be able to get there but when you really dig down into it, it's the mental strength that'll keep you there because you have all the talent in the world, but if you don't have the right focus, the right mental attitude and the right mental strength to deal with the pressures that come with it, you've got no chance of, of surviving in that world. And for anyone out there listening, Sean, what kind of strategies do you recommend or what, what does in the coaching courses, you know, how do you develop the mental strength of these young young athletes? The big thing is the media. I think that's the first thing we always kind of go to with young with young players is that you listen to your coaches. You don't listen to critics from outside of the football club because everybody's a critic online on social media and in the, in the newspapers and whatnot. But nobody, in, apart from the people inside the football club, understands what happens from a Monday to a Friday with training, what happens, what's happening in training, where a particular player might be in terms of his conditioning or his fitness or his readiness to play in a certain system. And then if he has a poor performance, we always say, like, you can't go looking for criticism because it will just hammer you down and put you into a rut. But on the same side, if you have a great performance, you can't go then looking for the positive ones as well because you can't have it both ways, you know? So it's about being grounded. It's about focusing on the, the goals at hand, taking things step by step, looking at where do you want to be? Okay, well, where are you now? How do we get you there? What challenges are you going to face on the way and how are we going to help you overcome them? That could be from understanding the game, physical, mental, you know, tactical, all the different facets of the game. So it's about having a plan for everyone and understanding that everybody's different we're all different as human beings different personalities are motivations are different we handle pressures and things like that in different ways so you really have to get to know your players and understand who you're dealing with how you talk to them and how you interact with them and try to figure out what they want what's best for them and then how do they get there and what are the small steps you need to take day by day week by week month by month season by season to uh, to get them there hanging around with the right people you know have good people in your life have good role models focus on the best who you perceive to be the strongest person in the room you see at football clubs when young young players come in you know if they have a bit of money and they buy a car and then they've got friends who are kind of hangers on it's like they're not the right people to be around you 
look at the hardest trainer in the group. Look at the guy who's played 500 professional games. Look at the guy who plays for his country. Look at the guy who comes in first and leaves last. You know, pick pick the right people, pick the right role models. And that, it's not just, I don't think it's just in football. I think that's that's true in in any profession, you know. That's amazing and, and, and a great insight, Sean. So we, we've spoken about the, the football players. What about the managers? Who looks after the managers and the coaching team? That, that's a fantastic question and something we spoke about recently on the, on the pro licence. Because you're the management team, you're almost, not, not forgotten, but you're almost the ones who have to deal with the other people. So there's not, there is, it doesn't feel like, or it's never felt like there are people there that are going to look after you. But what we did have, to be fair, in Sweden, we did look after each other. So we always used to have open conversations and talk and say, look, if anyone's feeling a bit down or you're feeling a bit stressed or you need a dig out and might need a day off, which is not common or normal to have during the season, then don't be afraid to kind of speak up and, and, and do that. And we actually brought in a, a sports psychologist, not just to do sessions with the players, but also to sit periodically with the staff as well, because we realised that we were caring for the players as you do as a coach, as part of your job. But we also said, well, hang on a minute, we need to make sure people look after us. And that was even more prevalent during COVID because of the isolation and how you travelled and how you interacted with people. And, and that, so that kind of brought it to the forefront a little bit more. But um, yeah, it's a great question. I think it's something that's sometimes overlooked. Thank you, Sean. What do you do for you? You know, I, I'm guessing we've got a view and image of, of management and, and, and managers out there. But let's be honest, we only really know that there wasn't the very top and you know, there's a merry-go-round of managers who seem to always get linked to jobs. They get sacked, they get another job, they get sacked, and so on and so on and so on. You know, but obviously that's not the um, every manager's situation. What's it really like being a manager where you're fighting every day for for your job? I suppose where you're, you know, you're looking, you're applying for jobs and stuff like that. Just give us an insight, Sean, into what's it really like as a manager. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. They always say that the, the, the best time in your job is your first day in the job <laughs> because you've signed your contract, you go in, everybody's happy for you to be there, but then you know, then the games come and that really dictates how people think and feel about you. You have to be very tactical. You have to obviously manage the team and try and get results because results are what will keep you in the game or in the job, sorry. But you also have to play a game of managing up, so managing the people above your chairman, sports directors, etc. And you're always trying to play this game of chess of trying to find the balance. And, and I've seen it in so many coaches' rooms and dressing rooms. It's it's quite horrible, to be honest with you. Like you say, you know, you, people see it as quite glamorous, but you're always trying to fight to keep yourself in a position of safety, which is very, very difficult to do if you're on a, a run of bad games, right? How do you protect yourself? Some managers start to play younger players and say, well, look, I'm trying to develop young players, but they're not quite ready. And that's why we're not getting the results. And that might buy them time. If you're good at managing up, then you try and bring in more experienced players, but there might not be the money to do that. So how do you facilitate that? You're always battling with the media. You know, you want friends in the media who are going to say good things about you. So people latch on to and think, oh, no, he's actually a good guy and he's doing a good job because that can buy you time. So it's a massive, massive game of chess and it's really stressful. And it's very, it can be very like kind of intimidating from, uh, from, from the pressure that you get from the outside. Very difficult to deal with. You have to be mentally very, very strong and very clever. And the, the, the unfortunate side of football, which I don't like, there are a lot of snakes in football. You know, the knives are always out. You make a wrong move with somebody, the knives come out and 
you could find yourself out of a job quite quickly. And that's one of the worst things, I think. When, when I left Sweden, I didn't get very much notice because of the whole change that happened between the management structure of the club. So we got four weeks notice that we were going to leave the club. And myself and my wife, we just had our daughter. You know, we lived in a club apartment and we got told, well, in four weeks, that's all over. You find yourself kind of on the scrap heap and no time to plan, no time to prepare. What's the next move? Where am I going to go? It was the end of the Swedish season, which is the middle of the English season. So is it easy to get a job? You know, and like you said yourself, there is a merry-go-round. There's not many managers staying a job longer than 18 months. There's only so many jobs. There's 96 clubs in the English Football League. You know, I think there's 20 jobs available in Ireland, for example, and only half of them are probably full-time. But when I finished my pro licence in Ireland, there's 96 pro licence holders in Ireland, but there's only 20 jobs. So somebody's going to suffer. So it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Um, and you have to really love it and be really passionate about it and have a good support structure behind you to be able to get through it. Fantastic, Sean. Uh, where are you now for our audience out there? What's happening right now? Yeah, so for me, like we came back to Dubai uh, when I left Sweden. It was the, the right thing to do for the family. I had a couple of a couple of half opportunities, but like I say, it was a, a bad timing in the season. We decided to take a break or a little step back from professional football or senior football. Came back to Dubai. So I'm now director of football for uh, Cognita Football Academy, which is um, basically a school's academy in Dubai. That's a great job. Very different to what I was doing, but very rewarding working with young kids again who are on the first ladder of whatever their football journey might be. I do TV commentary for the Adnock Pro League over here. So I work on the TV doing the commentary. Do radio for the Premier League. The World Cup obviously just passed us in, in Qatar. And I do a lot of individual coaching. So when players come over, professional players come over from England or from Europe during international breaks or if they're injured and they want to do some rehab, then uh, I work with those players. So I'm still busy, still involved with football, just not in that everyday full-time uh, rigmarole as I was before. And would you go back into it, Sean? I would. I would. I mean, I miss it. Uh, you know, I say to my wife, it's like a drug for me. Like it's all I've ever done. Football is all I've ever known. And when we left Sweden, it was, okay, I need a break. And then... It was like, okay, I like what we do and we have a great lifestyle and I get to spend time with the family, which I love, but I still have that feeling inside of me of like, I need to go back in and have another go. But I would only do it if the right opportunity came along, like a lot of things would have to fall into place for me to for me to give up what we have here to go back. And I suppose I can't resist myself here, but what is that dream club of yours? Huddersfield Town. Huddersfield Town. So manage- yeah, managing Huddersfield Town. I um. Look, I, I played for the club. I went back and coached there uh, about 10 years ago in the academy. And I've always said that I didn't make it Huddersfield as a player, but I'm determined to make it as a manager. Fantastic. Well, I really hope it works out for you and your family one day, Sean. Before I let you go, for any listeners out there that uh, would like to get into this industry, what tips would you give to them? Education is key. Education is key. I think whatever you choose to do in football, um, whether it's coaching, sports science, fitness, strength and conditioning, Education is key, and I think have good mentors. Do a lot of uh, investigation in what you want to do. Do a lot of free work. Work at different levels. You know, get that experience inside you. And um, you have to be prepared to step outside your comfort zone, and you have to take risks. Sean, thank you so much. Um, an amazing interview tonight, and I really wish you all the best. You're a massive inspiration to so many young people out there who dream of doing exactly what you're at. So, Sean, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Take care. So that was Sean O'Shea here. And really interesting because we hear of managers coming and going from clubs, but we 
never quite understand the impact on the human behind that, do we? Absolutely, we don't, Andrew. And, you know, myself and yourself are big into football and, and we watch matches today on a weekly basis and we hear the interviews with the, with the manager. But sometimes we need to take a step back and think, think of the pressure these people are under. You know, they're, they're in front of the limelight all the time. And can you imagine standing in a football stadium with tens of thousands of people criticising you? Think of, think of that for your mental health. How are you going to feel? Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal what they go through. And it, it was a brilliant interview and a, a real insight. That was Sean O'Shea. We will be back next week. Once again, thank you to our sponsors, ISD Sports Science in Sports City. Please do go along and mention the podcast when you go. Also remember that the book, the online course and the one-to-one sessions are all available from Kieran's website, which is Kieran. CMBcoachingandtraining.com. See you next time, Kieran. Take care, Andrew. Thanks so much.